Our scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, and it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The word of the Lord. You know, you know, when I was growing up, there were two Christmas characters that <clears throat> most regularly occupied my imagination. Uh, the first, of course, was Santa Claus. Um, I, I remember being um, most curious about the logistical question of how this portly fellow was doing his deliveries on a particular evening. But the other characters I was most fascinated by were the angels. And as it turns out, there really is no other place in the Bible where the angels play a more prominent role than in the Christmas story. But I kind of think that that's what led to a little bit of a problem because I tended to put Santa and the angels kind of in the same category. Santa, of course, lives in the reaches of the, uh, the imagination, the places where magic and wonders dwell. The angels, though, occupy a world that though we don't have visible access to on a regular basis, there are numerous places in Scripture where that, that space overlaps with the visible world and we see the angels working. So they're different, Santa and the angels, but they don't need to necessarily live in the same imaginative space, if that makes any sense. Because the truth of the matter is, is angels are such a rich part of the tapestry of how Christians think about the world. They're mysterious, absolutely. But they are powerfully present at some of the most crucial turning points in all of human history. So what are the angels? Well, there's a whole bunch of ways in which we can answer that question. Uh, we could say on the one hand that the angel, our angels are the ones who occupy the, the heavenly council, God's sort of a advisors that are around his throne that do his will and with whom he interacts. We could say they are what the Old Testament refers to as lowercase g, the gods, as they talk about them in the Old Testament. We could say that they're messengers who not only bring tidings to God's people, but oftentimes they enact his will on his behalf. But for our purpose this morning, and actually for next week, I want to focus on the angels as spectators. Spectators. That the angels are watchers of God's story that he's telling throughout the Bible. For since creation, angels have been watching and marveling at what God's been doing. Job 38, 4-7, we read about how God, when he laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning, says, quote, The morning stars sang together. And the sons of God shouted for glory. It's as if you get this idea of the, of the angels sort of in the heavenly bleachers, kind of cheering on God as he displays his wisdom through everything. It's almost like they're moviegoers who have come to watch the opening act of an epic film, elbowing each other saying, oh, this is going to be good. And so in the passage that we're looking at this morning, we actually get some very specific information about exactly what it is the angels are looking into. Look at verse 12 in 1 Peter 1. He says, Those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Think about that line there. I mean, there is something 
that so fascinates and captivates the angels so that it's their favorite of spectator sports. 1 Peter 1, 10-12 contain the most popular activity of what angels love to do. So yeah, angels are mysterious, but they're not mysterious about what motivates them. Because verse 10 contains that simple explanation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. That's it. It is grace that fascinates the angels. And there is no more essential word, I think, to grasp what the angels are obsessing over than that little word grace. This is the Christian distinctive. Because as we'll go on to dive into much this morning, every other world religion is about what you do. But Christianity is something that you receive. It comes to you. You don't earn it. So you'd be hard-pressed, I think, to find a word that's more precious to Christians than that word grace. That's one we talk about a lot, isn't it? You know, we're good company because it turns out that our fellow servants, the angels, they agree with us. And they find it equally fascinating. So this morning, I want to try to unpack these, these aspects of grace from 1 Peter 1 that help us see what it is that's excited the angels. So three ideas. I want to see grace anticipated grace declared, and then grace scrutinized. Let's see if I can help unpack that for you. First one is this, that grace was anticipated. Look carefully at verse 10. He says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours search and inquired carefully. Already you've got Peter giving us this very important nuance about how vital it is to understand how we come to appreciate the wonder of grace that is in the eyes of the angels. And it's simply this. We got grace because it came to us in the pages of the Bible. That's a huge point that we can't race past. Because it means that the gospel is contained in the Bible. Even so often to where you can speak of the two as if they're synonyms. Because when it comes to the formation of the Bible, what we believe as Christians is not that the Bible came sort of immediately to this people while God zapped them with insight and they just sort of magically you know, dictated the words. As if one of the authors would be like, I don't know what happened. I went into a trance and someone moved the pen for me. That's not how we believe we got the Bible. When Peter says that these authors searched out what they were writing, it means that they were involved in the process. These human beings were engaged in the process of writing Scripture. They didn't lose control. They didn't even lose their sense of cognition. It means that what happens is when they wrote their writings bore marks of their personality, marks of their experiences. You get little bits of their personal histories in it. In other words, there's a human side to the writing of the Bible, absolutely. However, on the other hand, all the while, the entirety of the process was being overshadowed and overseen by the Holy Spirit. So that they can make sure that what was finally made into the scriptures was, can actually be referred to as God's word. So Peter goes on actually in the second letter to explicitly describe this process in 2 Peter 1.21 when he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Don't you see the balance there? Men spoke. It was their thoughts, their history, their experiences. But as they were doing so, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, overshadowing it all. 
Okay, now who cares about this? <laughs> and what does it have to do with the angels? Well, look at verse 11. It says, These men were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter's clearly saying that what was motivating these writers, the prophets, was Jesus. Through the agency of the Spirit, these prophets were looking, anticipating, and writing about Jesus, according to Peter. One commentator says it this way, Jesus, therefore, is not simply the one through whom the prophets speak. He is the one who speaks through the prophets. The prophets spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who inspired them is the Spirit of Christ. Like it says in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So look, put all those pieces together. What it means is, is that the angels were fascinated by grace because all of the doctrine of it met in the person of Jesus. That's where it all came together. It is Jesus that ultimately holds their attention. So when you start to put together the whole story of the Bible, you see that the angels are fascinated by this grace that comes out because it's on every single page. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way in a sermon that I heard him preach when he said, The angels recognize that something is about to happen. They hear the Father say to the Son, Go. The Son says, I'm going. The Holy Spirit says, I'm going with you. But then God says to the angels as well, Go when he's born. Go to him when he's finished his temptations by the devil. Go to him in Gethsemane when he's facing the terror of death. No wonder that when Jesus was on the cross, he, could, he would say that he could call legions of angels to rescue him, as though they were peering over the balcony of heaven, ready to twitch to come to Jesus' rescue. Don't you love that? <laughs> Don't you kind of wish they would have? As if the angels were like they're just waiting, twitching, waiting for Jesus to give the word to be rescued from the cross. But he didn't do it. No, but for this reason, the, the way Peter talks means that every passage of the Bible ultimately terminates in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the point of the law. Jesus was the point of the prophets. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law code. Jesus was the one true king that David foreshadowed. Jesus was the fulfillment, the, the, the personification of wisdom from the poetry writings. So once you start reading the Bible as if it's about Jesus, then you begin to find it that it's really a rich document <laughs> because there's this bottomless well of insight and wonder that are contained in those pages because Jesus is found there. And that is what the angels are wondering at, gazing at, awestruck at. So grace was anticipated by the angels as they looked at it in the pages of Scripture. But secondly... Grace was also declared, secondly. And because there's a vital aspect of the gospel that often gets missed when you don't read the Bible this way. And verse 12 kind of helps us unpack it. Look what it says. It says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. It's a good word to underline. That word translated good news is the same uh, translation that we get uh, elsewhere that we translate as the word gospel, right? But notice how Peter phrases it. He says the things that were announced to you. That word announced there, if you literally translate it, would be the things that were angeled to you. 
In other words, an angel is one who came with an announcement. An angel came with news. It came with a report, which gives us a fantastic insight into the nature of the gospel, doesn't it? In other words, the gospel is good news. I heard one preacher say, the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. But most of the time, we just kind of want the good advice. You know, in other ancient Near Eastern writings, we find that the word messenger oftentimes is used to describe the town herald. Okay, obviously, back then, there's no internet, right? And so the only way in which you knew the news of the day was when the heralds would come into town and stand and say, Hey, listen up. Something happened. Good news. We've got an event. You know, the heralds did not come into town to say, Hey, good news. Diversify your portfolio. Or, hey, good news, crime doesn't pay. That's not what a herald did. A herald did not come with sayings of ethical advice. The herald came in to say, something has happened in human history and it changes everything. So you better listen up. The herald brings facts, a report. <clears throat> Look, I, missed, I mentioned this because if you don't get this, you're going to miss an essential feature of how unique Christianity is in the face of other religions. Because in other religions, it really is the ethical advice that is the point of the religion, right? You know, you want to find God, here's the path to follow. Here's the rules to keep. Here's the five disciplines for you to master. But it's Christianity that's so different because the most essential aspect of its, of its truth is that it's talking about a fact, about an event that actually happened in human history, a report. But man, is our culture trying to pull us back to the other way, others. I was listening a while back to some clips uh, from when Matthew McConaughey, of all people, uh, a budding philosopher that he is, uh, was on Joe Rogan's podcast, one of the most popular podcasts in the world right now. And, uh, you know, McConaughey fa fancies himself a bit of a spiritual person. Uh, but man, he couldn't have embodied this belief of our culture better in this little exchange between him and Joe Rogan. Here's what McConaughey says. He says, I don't know what to do with the magic tricks in the Bible. How do I appropriate that into my life? But there's philosophies and proverbs and teachings that are very valid and helpful that we can all be reminded of, and we find them in the Bible. Joe Rogan responds. He goes, you know, I think it's impossible to figure out what the Bible's trying to say. You know, it's open to interpretation, but it's also open to manipulation. And that's where I've got a real problem when it's used to separate and exclude and marginalize and judge people. But it's hard for those people who've had this experience happen to them that there's actually good about the Bible too. There's a lot of really valuable lessons in that book. To which McConaughey says, 100%. What did our fathers teach us? Sometimes you find out that the messenger and the message weren't in simpatico. I, went, I tried very hard to do a Matthew McConaughey impression, but I thought that would really not go over well. I don't know why. We're not in simpatico. Did I throw out the good stuff just because it came in a bad package? No, you take the stuff that works for you. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to argue. That is the way in which the culture views the Bible. But what I think we have the ability to say at that point is like when you frame the Bible in that way, you've turned it into something that you will always be the judge of. The Bible can never cross your will when you're hand-picking what you think is valid and what's not. It can't stand and judge you. So what you end up having is, is a Bible that is nothing more than something that's fashioned into your image. The Bible in that way is just kind of a mirror. I picked and chose the things that I kind of liked, and so therefore it's kind of me. But Peter's coming along and being like, no, 
The gospel actually isn't even, at first, about you at all. It's about him, something that he did. And if you read the Bible in this way, you're going to miss it entirely. McConaughey thinks that the Bible's only given us a list of moral rules to follow. Now, granted, there's lots of moral rules in the Bible. <laughs> what else was our Ten Commandments study about this fall, right? But if you read those commandments when they're isolated from the Bible's larger message, the Bible, I'll bet you, leaves you feeling crushed. And most importantly, untransformed. That's the difference. But the gospel's first and foremost about what Jesus did for you, then suddenly you're going to find that creeping its way into your heart. Because when there's been an act that's happened on your behalf, we suddenly find ourselves motivated by something different. Jesus looks as a giver of a gift. And our response of gratitude to him begins to fashion a heart that longs to love God. That's different. But it's Christian transformation. And by the way, the angels, they can't get enough of it. <laughs> so there's grace anticipated. There's grace that is declared. Thirdly and finally, grace has been scrutinized. I love this. This brings me to the last point. Because there really are two power-packed words in verse 12, that last little line. That if you can grasp their meaning, I think it will help you unlock how Christians understand how we go to be transformed. Look at what the verse says. Things into which the angels long to look. Underline, highlight, whatever. Those two words, long and look. First of all, what does it mean for them to look? Well, if you go back and do some word study on that, the word literally means to gaze, to meditate upon, to, to obsess over, to have a passion for. It's interesting, if you literally, literally, literally translate it, the word to look means to stoop down and look into. Now, here's why that's interesting. Because that word that, uh, it's, that Peter uses there is only used four other times in the entirety of the New Testament. Three of those times, it's describing what Peter and Mary and some other apostles did when they went to Jesus' tomb for the first time after the resurrection. They stooped and they looked into. Guys, there is no way that's a coincidence that Peter would choose that word to describe what the angels are doing. It has to be there. The other time it's used is in James chapter 1 when it says, if a man beholds his face in a mirror. What does it mean to behold something? Well, it means more than to glance. Look. It means actually to sort of to take it in. It's something that holds your attention and your gaze. You study it. You examine it. Okay, so that's looking. But combine the word look with the word longing, man, you get something powerful. The word longing there is translated with the Greek word that I think you've heard me mention before, and that's the Greek word epithumia. That's a big word. It's made up of two Greek words. The one is thumia comes from this powerful inward desire. Sometimes you have it translated in other places, thumia, as wrath, okay, as anger. It's an emotional explosion. But when you stick that little prefix epi in front of it, it takes on this heightened form to become a powerful, life-shaping desire. And so much so that in some places it's translated to lust. <laughs> Speaking of desires that take you over, right? Let me give an example in Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus uses the word epithumia when he says to his disciples at the Last Supper, I have greatly desired, epithumiaed, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What is he saying? I have this deep, powerful longing to be with you in this way. Man, so do you see what Peter's saying? The angels are obsessing over the gospel. They are staring at it in the same way that you stare at someone that you find beautiful. 
they are staring at it in the same way that you gaze into a fire and just can't quit looking at it. They're staring at it in the same way that a child who picks up a kaleidoscope for the first time and turns it and twists it, sometimes for hours just to see what it's going to create. My point is, the degree to which you relate and experience what the angels are longing to look into is the way you'll unlock what it really means to be a Christian. That's what I've been trying to say. And by the way, it actually even comes to dominate what it means to be a church. I do think that there is a, there is a reason for us to ask ourselves on a regular basis, what exactly am I doing here? <laughs> is it because of cultural convention? Is it because of, I don't know, this is what good business people do in a community? Because the collection of God's people is supposed to be people who stand shoulder to shoulder and say, you heard about it too? <laughs> Did you see this? You know what it's about? It's about grace. The people of God are united together because somewhere in the midst of it, we, began, we discovered that there was this thing called good news. And we thought it was important enough not only to be transformational for us, but that the whole world ought to know about it. <laughs> How do we let people know about this? I know we'll build a $10 million church so people can come in, so we can hear about it week in and week out. That's what God's people do. That's how they're motivated. But here's the deal. If you start to really ping people for what it is that really motivates their Christianity, I think you get lots of answers. You know, in some, to some degree, there's people that will say, you know, they kind of have what I call the information view of Christianity. I'm a Christian because to some semi-official way, I've subscribed to the teachings of the Bible. Of course, I'm a Christian, right? But that's not big enough to contain what Peter's talking about here. Other people take what we might call the ethical stance. These are people that say, well, I've adopted, right, the behavioral code that is the Bible. That's what I personally follow. So, yes, of course I'm a Christian. But, again, even that's not enough to get at what Peter's talking about. Then you might have what I would call the mystical view. The mystical view is people who say, when I was younger, I had something happen to me that I cannot explain. It was an experience, an encounter, a, a power encounter, whatever. Therefore, yes, I'm a Christian. But even that highly subjective past experience, that is not what the angels are doing. The angels are longing to look into this fascinating thing that's called the gospel and grace. We're betrayed so often the way we talk about this, don't we? When I was on campus with college students, I so often would hear them say, Oh, Les, please, are we going to do this again? I know all that stuff. I know the information which was always funny because whenever I would start to quiz them, even on the most rudimentary aspects of the doctrines of grace, they invariably came up short. But I don't think a Christian ever says, we're going to talk about grace again? Look, I know all that. What I want is the advanced stuff. I'm not getting to the real interesting stuff. I want, I want to move past all this grace stuff and find out what it really means to be a disciple. Christians don't talk that way because the angels don't talk that way. Bottom line is, one commentator said, have you discovered the bottomlessness of the gospel? Well said. Because if we haven't, then we need to examine that. If I have a view of grace that has not sort of taken over my life and begun to see places where it's radically transformed the way I look at things, it might be that I miss something. And I think for a lot of people, grace ends up being this idea of, of unconditional love, right? God loved me unconditionally, and that's the most sweetest thing in the whole wide world, and that's his grace to me. And my answer is, 
Yes, that's true. But you do realize that God's love for us was not just unconditional. <laughs> God's love for his people is contra-conditional. In other words, it's not just that he loved me where I was. He loved me when the opposite was what I deserved. In other words, what I deserved from him was opposition. What I deserved from him was litigation. That's what I deserved. But you recognize that when that kind of person gives you grace and shows you favor, you know, you can tell that you can tell when it was real because the minute that you grasped it, it threatened you. It was threatening. And the reason why it's threatening is because when someone has given up that much for you to that degree, you suddenly realize, I can't be in control of my life anymore. They're in control of my life. Your sovereignty is going out the window when all of a sudden somebody gives you and you realize that the numbers, the numbers are too big now. <laughs> the accounting, I can't make balance in terms of my effort and their effort. It's overwhelming me. I deserved the opposite, and yet he's given me. You're going to owe the rest of your life to that person who gave you that kind of grace. Let me see if I can illustrate this. There's a great line <clears throat> in uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. It has the, the, the main character, Jean Valjean, who's receiving this great act of grace towards the beginning of the book. Valjean, newly broken out of prison, has found his way into a priest's home where on his way out of the priest's home, he steals a candlestick. Well, he's caught by the authorities immediately and they drag him back to the priest to present him and have him you know, witness to his theft. Well, the priest in this moment looks at him and not only doesn't prosecute him, he looks at him and says, no, no, actually, Valjean, you, you forgot the other candlestick. I meant to give you two. And in that moment, Valjean sort of gets this incredible thing. The priest did not just show favor to Valjean, someone to whom he owed nothing. He showed favor to someone who had stolen from him. Now listen for how Hugo unpacks this. This is so good. He says, Valjean didn't know if he had been touched or humiliated. In opposition to this celestial kindness, he summoned up his pride. The priest's pardon was the most formidable attack he had ever sustained. He felt his hardness of heart would be complete if he could just resist this kindness. That if he yielded to it, he would have to renounce the hatred with which his mistreatment by others had filled his soul and which he had found so much satisfaction. In the face of this assault, he knew he had to conquer or be conquered. <laughs> That's what grace does to you. Look, if you start to experience the grace of God, you feel the exact same way. God starts to open up your heart. He starts to tell you how much he loves you, but then all of a sudden you begin to see exactly what is inside of you. And you see that his love was put upon someone who was not indifferent, but was opposed to him. You begin to feel your anti-God bias that creeps into everything that you do. And suddenly, when all of a sudden he continues to love you again and again and again, and if thou hast drawn a thousand times, O Lord, draw me again, and he does, you'll know you've met the grace of God when you realize that's threatening. Because if I accept that grace, I owe him everything. He can tell me anything to do. And that's the reason why we push it out. We take the comments of grace. It's the comments of grace that we filter out. For some of us, for many of us, the humility we can get, we can heap that stuff on ourselves all day long because you know what it is? It's nothing more than self-atonement. But to receive his favor, to receive his smile, means in the face of my sin, I owe him everything. And here's the crazy thing. That thought never gets old. At least not to the angels. 
Why? Because the angels may be greater in power, but God's people, you and I, we're much greater in privilege. You want to know why? Because here's the deal. We have something that the angels don't have. Because Jesus did something in us that he never did for the angels. Look, if you could talk to an angel, I think, and ask him, you know, what's got you so curious? What's got you so interested that you're looking into this grace of the gospel? I think he would say, well, look, here's the deal. I have a creator, but you have a redeemer. I can't stop looking at it. And it's almost as if the message of Christmas to see what the angels saw is an invitation for us to sort of power through all the sentimentality of Christmas and suddenly see a God who comes to bring grace, grace into which the angels long to look. Wouldn't that be a good Christmas? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into it, even now, Father, as we lift up our voices so that we might sing the familiar Christmas carols that we sung a thousand times in our lifetimes, But when it comes down to it, Father, remind us once again that indeed unto us a child has been born, that the angels stood and they screamed, hark, (laughs) and they began to sing that there is glory in the earth because the king has come. So, Father, inhabit our praise this morning. Listen to the things that we say. And may those words, as they leave our mouths, may they shape us. May we come and see your grace in a way that perhaps we may not have ever seen before. Not just unconditional, contraconditional. And therefore, something that can change us. We want that. Would you do it? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.